Hello, and welcome to The Poison Room, a podcast that's usually about books or texts that can be construed as dangerous in one way or another. But this is not going to be a normal episode. Instead, I'm going to share with you some of the curious stories and articles I've come across whilst researching other things, mainly so I can justify to myself having spent the time reading them, rather than focusing on the actual research I was supposed to be doing when I found them but also because I think they're cool, and therefore want to share them with y'all. Some of them are very short, some are a bit longer, and this first one is long enough that it's going to be the only one in this episode. Next time there will be a bunch of shorter ones. My plan was to do these tangents every nine episodes, so episode 10, 20, etc. would be tangents. After each tangent episode, I'm going to take a week off just to make sure I can keep on top of research. However... I have already encountered a slight problem with this plan. Despite my best efforts to find a topic that I could cover in one episode, I started a topic and realised halfway through that it was going to be a two-parter. Just two parts, I promise. So instead of sticking a two-week break in between those two episodes, I decided to move the tangent and the week off forward by a week. So next week there will be no episode, and the week after that I'll be back with a new story full of religious and political intrigue. Anyway, this week's tangent is from the diary of Elbergence Waldo, who, at the time of this story, is a surgeon in the 1st Infantry Regiment of the Connecticut Line during America's Revolutionary War. The extracts of the diary are from the period during which Elbergence was present at the building of the Valley Forge encampment at the end of 1777. This was the third of eight encampments of Washington's Continental Army. The extracts were published in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography in 1897. I'm largely going to read it without comment, but I'll drop in a few explanatory notes where they might be needed. For those of you reading the transcripts, I copied the spelling and grammar of the original, and it's not always consistent, so if you see something that looks like an error, it's probably him, not me. I think the only necessary historical context to follow this account is that in September of 1777, Washington ordered Elbergence's regiment to join the army in Pennsylvania. The British had captured the city of Philadelphia and winter was setting in. It was not going to be a pleasant one. So let's get to Elbergence's diary. November 10th, 1777. Captain Lee of the Light Dragoons brought in Captain Nichols of the English Packet, whom we took prisoner at Newcastle. I heard Captain Nichols observe that one hour before he was taken, he had had the following reflections. His Majesty has made me a commander of a fine ship, a packet too. I need not ever fight. I have nothing to do but transport gentlemen and ladies of the first rank. I have a fine stock of provisions aboard. Hens, turkeys, geese, pigs, ducks, wine and cider. I have a good interest at home, and what is above all, an agreeable family. I am not troubled in my heart. In short, I have nothing to make me uneasy, and I believe I am the happiest man in the world. Captain Nichols was now the unhappiest man in the world. His reflections were turned upon the vicissitudes of life, the sudden changes of fortune and the variety of events that may happen to a man in the course of a few hours. If we would set our reasons to work and believe what is undeniably true, that there is no dependence to be put upon the whiffling winds of fortune, we could bear disappointments without anxiety. A man of the least observation will find every state changeable, and while he considers this mutability of time and things, he will be better prepared to undergo the misfortunes of life and the disappointments inseparable from it. 
When a disappointment overtakes us unguarded by such reflections, it often throws us into a fit of anger which vents itself on those connected with us in opprobrious words against the providence of God. An incessant cannonading at or near Red Bank this day. No salt to eat dinner with. November 11th, 12th, 13th and 14th. Nothing material happened. November 15th. An attack was made on Fort Mifflin by four ships, four batteries and one galley. Our people fired from Fort Mifflin, one battery, twelve galleys and two shearbacks, or small ships. The firing was incessant all day. Our people defended themselves with unparalleled bravery amidst a continual storm of balls, till at length, when Captain Lee's company of artillery were almost all cut off, and a reinforcement had stood at the guns till nine o'clock in the evening, the garrison evacuated the fort, after having spiked up the cannon. Captain Stephen Brown was killed by a shot from the round top of a ship that had hauled up in pistol shot of the fort. Memo. Fort Mifflin was a burlesque upon the art of fortification. November 19th. The Boston and Hampshire regiments began to join the Grand Army. This day, Huntington's brigade, consisting of Prentices, Bradleys and Swifts, marched for Red Bank, which the garrison evacuated before we arrived. Green's division next day marched for the same place, who, with Huntington's brigade and the garrison consisting of Varnum's brigade, met at Mount Holly, five miles east of Burlington, where we encamped till the evening of the 25th. Mount Holly, so called from a little mount nigh the town, is a compact and pleasant village, having a great proportion of handsome women therein. Near this town, in a wood, a hermit has dwelt these twenty-seven years, living on bread and water. His bed is a hole dug in the ground about one foot and a half below the surface, and covered at pleasure with a board. Over this is built a small bark hut hardly big enough for a man to sit up in. When he goes to bed he claws into his hut and at the further end slips into his hole, which he calls his grave, drawing over the board, and goes to sleep. He crawls night and morning on his hands and knees about two rods to a particular tree to pray. He says he was warned of God in a remarkable dream when he first came to America to take this course of life. He has many Latin and other books in his lonely cell, and is said to write considerably. He kisses every man's hand that visits him, and thankfully accepts of what it is gave him, except money, which he refuses. His beard is done up in a loose club under his chin. He is of small stature and speaks very fast. He talks but little English, chiefly German or Latin. He says he shall come out purified and live like other folks, if he continues in this state till he is eighty. He says he often wishes for death, being frequently afflicted with pains of body by the method of his life. He never goes near a fire in the coldest time. Much is said about the reasons of his doing penance in this manner, but chiefly that he murdered his own sister, and that he killed a gentleman in a duel while an officer in the French service. He was also in the German service, among his countrymen the Germans. Note. This was one of the parts that interested me the most. I was really hoping I'd be able to find out more about this hermit, and lo and behold, there was a book published in 1811 of some letters that give an account of his life. So I'm definitely going to be reading that soon. For now, I'll just say that his name was Francis Adam Joseph File, and he was apparently a native of Switzerland, not Germany. November 25th. 
In the evening, we marched for Haddonfield, not far from Red Bank, where we arrived in the morning of... November 26. Lay in the forest of Haddonfield, cold and uncomfortable. Two Hessian deserters came in who declared our little parties had killed a number of the enemy. Fifteen prisoners were brought in, two women. November 27th. Returned to Mount Holly. Same day, Green's Division and Glover's Brigade, who had arrived from the northward two days before, marched to Burlington. Morgan, with his riflemen, were left with the militia to harass the enemy as they were recrossing the river from Red Bank to the city. November 28. The remainder of us marched to Burlington. P.M. the rest of the army crossed over to Bristol. A storm prevented the baggage going over this night, which prevented Dr. L. and myself also crossing with our horses. November 29. Storm increased. About 1 p.m., an alarm was made by a report that the enemy were within 15-minute march of the town to take the baggage. Those of us who had horses rode up to Burden Town. The baggage and the sick were all hurried out of town the same way, but had not got two miles before they were turned back on its being a false alarm. For the sake of good living, however, Dr. L., Parson E., and myself went to Burden Town up the river, lived well, and crossed over to Windsor the next day and arrived at Bristol in the evening when I had my shoes and silver buckles stole. Dr. L. had a valuable great coat stole the day before at Burlington. December 1st. We marched to headquarters and our division, MacDougall's, encamped on the left of the second line. Our former station was in the centre of the front line. Here, huts of sticks and leaves sheltered us from the inclemency of the weather, and we lay pretty quiet until... December 5th. At 3 o'clock a.m. the alarm guns were fired and troops immediately paraded at their several alarm posts. The enemy were approaching with their whole strength to give us battle. Nothing further remarkable ensued this day. At night our troops lay on their arms, the baggage being all sent away, except what a man might run or fight with. December 6th. The enemy, forming a line from toward our right to the extremity of our left upon an opposing long height to ours in a wood. Our men were under arms all day and this night also, as our wise general was determined not to be attacked napping. December 7th. Alarm given. Troops on their several post. Toward noon, Colonel Charles Webb's regiment were partially surrounded and attacked on the right of the army. They, being overpowered by numbers, retreated with loss. The brave Captain Walbridge was wounded in the head. Lieutenant Harris killed. A scattering fire through to the left soon began and continued a few minutes, till our pickets ran in. The firing soon ceased on the right, and continued on the left, as though an attack were meant to begin there. On this supposition, the left were reinforced. But a scattering fire was kept up by Morgan's battalion, at intervals all day, and concluded with a little skirmish at sunset. Our troops lay on their arms this night also. Some firing among the pickets in the night. December 8th. All at our several posts. Provisions and whiskey very scarce. Were soldiers to have plenty of food and rum, I believe they would storm Toffet. Our lines were on a long hill extending about three miles, all manned, and a bet's in front from right to left, another in the rear of the left, with the cross of Betty near the extremity. Note. 
I was confused for a while about what exactly this abettors was. Pretty much only this account comes up when you search for the word. Then, upon studying a map, I realised the word was avatis, which is a type of fortification where you chop down some trees and place them over each other with the branches pointing outwards. I can't tell you if the mistake is Albigens or whoever typed up his account for the magazine. Five men from each regiment in Varnum's and Huntington's brigades as volunteers joined Morgan's riflemen to harass the enemy and excite an attack. Some regiments were ordered to march out if an attack should begin in earnest. This afternoon, a small skirmish happened near the enemy's line against our left. Toward night, the enemy fired some cannon against our right and two against our left. Their horse appeared to be busily moving. In the evening, there were but two spots of fire in the enemy's camp, one against our park, or main centre, the other against the extremity of our left, when the evening before they extended from almost our right to our left. At twelve o'clock at night, our regiment, with sixteen more, were ordered to parade immediately before His Excellency's quarters under command of Sullivan and Wayne. We were there by one. When intelligence came that the enemy had made a precipitate retreat and was safely got into the city, we were all chagrined at this, as we were more willing to chase them in the rear than meet such sulky dogs in front. We were now remanded back with several draughts of rum in our frozen bellies, which made us so glad we all fell asleep in our huts, nor experienced the coldness of the night till we found ourselves much stiffened by it in the morning. December 9th. We came from within the breastworks, where we had been cooped up four tedious days, with clothes and boots on night and day, and resumed our old huts east of the breastwork. The rest of the army chiefly had their huts within the lines. We are insensible what we are capable of enduring till we are put to the test. To endure hardships with good grace, we must always think of the following maxim. Pain succeeds pleasure, and pleasure succeeds pain. December 10th. Lay still. December 11th. At four o'clock, the whole army were ordered to march to Swedes Ford on the river Skullkill, about nine miles northwest of Chestnut Hill, and six from White Marsh, our present encampment. At sun, an hour high, the whole were moved from the lines and on their march with baggage. This night, encamped in a semicircle, neither Ford. The enemy had marched up the west side of Skullkill. Potter's brigade of Pennsylvania militia were already there, and had several skirmishes with them, with some loss on his side and considerable on the enemy's. An English sergeant deserted to us this day, and informed that Webb's regiment killed many of their men on the 7th, that he himself took Webb's sergeant major, who was a former deserter from them, and was to be hanged this day. I am prodigious sick, and cannot get anything comfortable. What in the name of Providence am I to do with a fit of sickness in this place where nothing appears pleasing to the sickened eye and nauseating stomach? But I doubt not Providence will find out a way for my relief. But I cannot eat beef if I starve, for my stomach positively refuses to entertain such company. And how can I help that? December 12th. A bridge of wagons made across the school kill last night consisting of 36 wagons with a bridge of rails between each, some skirmishing over the river. Militia and dragoons brought into camp several prisoners. Sunset, we were ordered to march over the river. 
It snows. I'm sick. Eat nothing. No whiskey. No forage. Lord, Lord, Lord. The army were till sunrise crossing the river, some at the wagon bridge and some at the raft bridge below, cold and uncomfortable. December 13th. The army marched three miles from the west side of the river and encamped near a place called the Gulf, and not an improper name neither, for this gulf seems well adapted by its situation to keep us from the pleasure and enjoyments of this world, or being conversant with anybody in it. It is an excellent place to raise the ideas of a philosopher beyond the gutted thoughts and reflections of an Epicurean. His reflections will be as different from the common reflections of mankind as if he were unconnected with the world, and only conversant with immaterial beings. It cannot be said that our superiors are about to hold consultations with spirits infinitely beneath their order by bringing us into these utmost regions of the terraqueous sphere. No, it is, upon consideration, for many good purposes since we are to winter here. First, there is plenty of wood and water. Secondly, there are but few families for the soldiery to steal from, though far be it from a soldier to steal. Fourthly, there are warm sides of hills to erect huts on. Note, that's not an error on my part. Either he skipped number three or the transcriber did. Fifthly, they will be heavenly-minded like Jonah when in the belly of a great fish. Sixthly, they will not become homesick as is sometimes the case when men live in the open world, since the reflections which will naturally arise from their present habitation will lead them to more noble thoughts of employing their leisure hours in filling their knapsacks with such materials as may be necessary on the journey to another home. December 14th. Prisoners and deserters are continually coming in. The army, which had been surprisingly healthy hitherto, now begins to grow sickly from the continued fatigues they have suffered this campaign. Yet they will still show a spirit of alacrity and contentment not to be expected from so young troops. I am sick, discontented, and out of humour. Poor food, hard lodging, cold weather, fatigue, nasty clothes, nasty cookery, vomit half my time, smoked out of my senses. The devil's in it. I can't endure it. Why are we sent here to starve and freeze? What sweet felicities have I left at home? A charming wife, pretty children, good beds, good food, good cookery, all agreeable, all harmonious. Here all the confusion, smoke and cold, hunger and filthiness, a pox on my bad luck. There comes a bowl of beef soup, full of burnt leaves and dirt, sickish enough to make a hector spew. Away with it, boys, I'll live like the chameleon upon air. Po, po, cries patience within me, you talk like a fool. Your being sick covers your mind with a melancholic gloom which makes everything about you appear gloomy. See the poor soldier, when in health, with what cheerfulness he meets his foes and encounters every hardship. If barefoot, he labours through the mud and cold with a song in his mouth extolling war and Washington. If his food be bad, he eats it notwithstanding with seeming content, blesses God for a good stomach and whistles it into digestion. But hark ye, patience, a moment. There comes a soldier, his bare feet are seen through his worn-out shoes, his legs nearly naked from the tattered remains of an only pair of stockings. 
his breeches not sufficient to cover his nakedness, his shirt hanging in strings, his hair dishevelled, his face meagre, his whole appearance pictures a person forsaken and discouraged. He comes and cries with an air of wretchedness and despair. I am sick, my feet lame, my legs are sore, my body covered with this tormenting itch. My clothes are worn out, my constitution is broken, my former activity is exhausted by fatigue, hunger and cold. I fail fast, I shall soon be no more, and all the reward I shall get will be. Poor Will is dead. People who live at home in luxury and ease, quietly possessing their habitations, enjoying their wives and families in peace, have but a very faint idea of the unpleasing sensations and continual anxiety the man endures who is in a camp and is the husband and parent of an agreeable family. These same people are willing we should suffer everything for their benefit and advantage, and yet are the first to condemn us for not doing more. December 15th Quiet. Eat pessimums. Found myself better for their lenient operation. Went to a house, poor and small, but good food within. Eat too much from being so long abstemious, through want of palatables. Mankind are never truly thankful for the benefits of life until they have experienced the want of them. The man who has seen misery knows best how to enjoy good. He who is always at ease and has enough of the blessings of common life is an impotent judge of the feelings of the unfortunate. December 16th Cold, rainy day. Baggage ordered over the gulf of our division, which were to march at ten. But the baggage was ordered back, and for the first time since we have been here, the tents were pitched to keep the men more comfortable. Good morning, brother soldier, says one to another. How are you? All wet, I thank ye. Hope you are so, says the other. The enemy have been at Chestnut Hill, opposite to us, near our last encampment, the other side of Skullkill. Made some ravages, killed two of our horsemen, taken some prisoners. We have done the like by them. December 18th Universal Thanksgiving, a roasted pig at night. God be thanked for my health, which I have pretty well recovered. How much better should I feel were I assured my family were in health? But the same good being who graciously preserves me is able to preserve them and bring me to the ardently wished-for enjoyment of them again. Rank and precedence make a good deal of disturbance and confusion in the American army. The army are poorly supplied with provision, occasioned, it is said, by the neglect of the commissary of purchases. Much talk among officers about discharges. Money has become of too little consequence. The Congress have not made their commissions valuable enough. Heaven avert the bad consequences of these things. There's a gap in the text here, and it picks up again halfway through a sentence. Up the North Road, and so got out unnoticed. He informed that Cornwallis was embarked for England, and that some Highlanders had gone to New York for winter quarters. There is nothing to hinder parties of the like kind above mentioned, continually coming out between Delaware and Skullkill and plundering and destroying the inhabitants. Our brethren who are unfortunately prisoners in Philadelphia meet with the most savage and inhumane treatments that barbarians are capable of inflicting. Our enemies do not knock them in the head, or burn them with torches, or flay them alive, 
or gradually dismember them till they die, which is customary among savages and barbarians. No, they are worse by far. They suffer them to starve, to linger out their lives in extreme hunger. One of these poor and happy men drove to the last extreme by rage of hunger, eat his own fingers up to the first joint from the hand before he died. Others eat the clay, the lime, the stones of the prison walls. Several who died in the yard had pieces of bark, wood, clay and stones in their mouths, which the ravings of hunger had caused them to take in for food in the last agonies of life. These are thy mercies, O Britain. December 21st, Valley Forge. Preparations made for huts, provisions scarce. Mr Ellis went homeward, sent a letter to my wife. Heartily wish myself at home. My skin and eyes are almost spoiled with continual smoke. A general cry through the camp this evening among the soldiers. No meat, no meat. The distant veils echoed back the melancholy sound. No meat, no meat. Imitating the noise of crows and owls also made a part of the confusing music. What have you for dinner, boys? Nothing but fire cake and water, sir. At night. Gentlemen, the supper is ready. What is your supper, lads? Fire cake and water, sir. Very poor beef has been drawn in our camp the greater part of this season. A butcher bringing a quarter of this kind of beef into camp one day who had white buttons on the knees of his breeches. A soldier cries out, There, there, Tom, is more of your fat beef. By my soul, I can see the butcher's breeches buttons through it. December 22nd. Lay excessive cold and uncomfortable last night. My eyes are started out from their orbits like a rabbit's eyes, occasioned by a great cold and smoke. What have you got for breakfast, lads? Fire cake and water, sir. The Lord send that our commissary of purchases may live on fire cake and water till their glutted guts are turned to pasteboard. Note, fire cake is literally just flour and water combined and then cooked on a fire. Our division are under marching orders this morning. I am ashamed to say it, but I am tempted to steal fowls if I could find them, or even a whole hog, for I feel as if I could eat one. But the impoverished country about us affords us but little matter to employ a thief, or keep a clever fellow in good humour. But why do I talk of hunger and hard usage when so many in the world have not even fire cake and water to eat? The human mind is always poring upon the gloomy side of fortune, and while it inhabits this lump of clay, will always be in an uneasy and fluctuating state, produced by a thousand incidents in common life which are deemed misfortunes, while the mind is taken off from the nobler pursuits of matters in futurity. The sufferings of the body naturally gain the attention of the mind, and this attention is more or less strong in greater or lesser souls, although I believe that ambition and a high opinion of fame makes many people endure hardships and pains with that fortitude we aftertimes observe them to. On the other hand, a despicable opinion of the enjoyments of this life by a continued series of misfortunes and a long acquaintance with grief induces others to bear afflictions with becoming serenity and calmness. It is not in the power of philosophy, however, to convince a man he may be happy and contented if he will, with a hungry belly. 
Give me food, clothes, wife and children, kind heaven, and I'll be as contented as my nature will permit me to be. This evening, a party with two field pieces were ordered out. At twelve of the clock at night, Providence sent us a little mutton, with which we immediately had some broth made, and a fine stomach for the same. Ye who eat pumpkin pie and roast turkeys, and yet curse fortune for using you ill, curse her no more, lest she reduce your allowance of her favours to a bit of fire cake and a draught of cold water, and in cold weather too. December 23rd. The party that went out last evening not returned today. This evening an excellent player on the violin, in that soft kind of music, which is so finely adapted to stir up the tender passions. While he was playing in the tent next to mine, these kind of soft airs, it immediately called up in remembrance all the endearing expressions, the tender sentiments, the sympathetic friendship that has given so much satisfaction and sensible pleasure to me from the first time I gained the heart and affection of the tenderest of the fair. A thousand agreeable little incidents which have occurred since our happy connection and which would have passed totally unnoticed by such who are strangers to the soft and sincere passion of love were now recalled to my mind and filled with me these tender emotions and agreeable reflections, which cannot be described and which, in spite of my philosophy, forced out the sympathetic tear. I wished to have the music cease, and yet dreaded it ceasing, lest I should lose sight of these dear ideas which gave me pain and pleasure at the same instant. Ah, oh, heaven, why is it that our harder fate so often deprives us the enjoyment of what we most wish to enjoy this side of thy brighter realms? There is something in this strong passion of love far more agreeable than what we can derive from any other passion and which duller souls and cheerless minds are insensible of and laugh at. Let such fools laugh at me. December 24th Party of the 22nd not returned. Huts go on slowly. Cold and smoke make us fret. But mankind are always fretting, even if they have more than their proportion of the blessings of life. We are never easy, always repining at the providence of an all-wise and benevolent being, blaming our country or faulting our friends. But I don't know of anything that vexes a man's soul more than hot smoke continually blowing into his eyes, and when he attempts to avoid it, is met by a cold and piercing wind. December 25th, Christmas. We are still in tents, when we ought to be in huts. The poor sick suffer much in tents in this cold weather, but we now treat them differently from what they used to be at home under the inspection of old women and Dr. Bolus Linctus. We give them mutton and grog and a capital medicine once in a while to start the disease from its foundations at once. We avoid piddling pills, powders, boluses, linctuses, cordials, and all such insignificant matters whose powers are only rendered important by causing the patient to vomit up his money instead of his disease. But very few of the sick men die. December 26th. Party of the 22nd not returned. The enemy have been some days the west skullkill from opposite the city to Derby. Their intentions not yet known. The city is at present pretty clear to them. Why don't his excellently rush in and retake the city, in which he will doubtless find much plunder? Because he knows better than to leave his post and be catched like a damned fool cooped up in the city. He has always acted wisely hitherto. 
his conduct when closely scrutinised is uncensurable. Were his inferior generals as skilful as himself, we should have the grandest choir of officers ever God made. Many countrymen, gentlemen in the interior parts of the states who get wrong information on the affairs and state of our camp are very much surprised at General Washington's delay to drive off the enemy, being falsely informed that his army consists of double the number of the enemies. Such wrong information serves not to keep up the spirit of the people, as they must be by and by undeceived to their no small disappointment. It brings blame of His Excellency, who is deserving of the greatest encomiums. It brings disgrace on the continental troops, who have never evidenced the least backwardness in doing their duty, but, on the contrary, have cheerfully endured a long and very fatiguing campaign. Tis true we have fought but little this campaign, which is not owing to any unwillingness in officers or soldiers, but for want of convenient opportunities, which have not offered themselves this season. Though this may be contradicted by many, but the impartial truth in future history will clear up these points and reflect lasting honour on the wisdom and prudence of General Washington. The greatest number of continental troops that have been with His Excellency this campaign never consisted of more than 11,000, and the greatest number of militia in the field at once were not more than 2,000. Yet these accounts are exaggerated to 50 or 60,000. How, by the best and most authentic accounts, has never had less than 10,000? If, then, General Washington, by opposing little more than an equal number of young troops to old veterans, has kept his ground in general, cooped them up in the city, prevented their making any considerable inroads upon him, killed and wounded a very considerable number of them in different skirmishes, and made many proselytes to the shrine of liberty by these little successes, and by prudence, calmness, sedateness, and wisdom with which he facilitates all his operations. This being the case, and his not having wantonly thrown away the lives of his soldiers, but reserved them for another campaign, if another should open in the spring, which is of the utmost consequence, this then cannot be called an inglorious campaign. If he had risked a general battle and should have proved unsuccessful, what in the name of heaven would have been our case this day? Troops are raised with great difficulty in the southern states. Many regiments from these states do not consist of 100 men. What then was the grand southern army before the New England troops joined them, and if this army is cut off where we should get another good one? General Washington has doubtless considered these matters, and his conduct this campaign has certainly demonstrated his prudence and wisdom. Note. That statement about history supporting Washington's decision is the kind of thing that I normally would have consulted multiple books over to see if that had been the case, or was the case now. But I resisted, because that's not the point of this episode. This winter was seen as a defining moment in the war. Multiple books have been written just about what happened at Valley Forge and its impact on the war. It was certainly a trial of Washington's leadership, and one he survived. Washington chose the Valley Forge site because he wanted to stay close to Philadelphia, but all the surrounding towns were full of refugees that had fled the city. So instead, his army ended up at Valley Forge, an inhospitable site. Plenty of people at the time thought that this was a bad idea, and throughout the winter, as we've already partly seen, Washington struggled to obtain supplies for his men. Anyway, back to Albigence. 
This evening, cross the Skullkill with Dr. Coleman. Eat plenty of persimmons, which is the most lenient, sub-acid and sub-astringent fruit, I believe, that grows. December 27th. My horse shod. A snow. Lodged at Welshman's this night. Returned to camp in the morning of the 28th. Snowed last night. December 28th. Yesterday, upward of 50 officers in General Green's division resigned their commissions. Six or seven of our regiment are doing the like today. All this is occasioned by officers' families being so much neglected at home on account of provisions. Their wages will not buy considerable, purchase a few trifling comforts here in camp, and maintain their families at home, while such extravagant prices are demanded for the common necessaries of life. What then have they to purchase clothes and other necessaries with? It is a melancholy reflection that what is of the most universal importance is most universally neglected. I mean, keeping up the credit of money. The present circumstances of the soldier is better by far than the officer's, for the family of the soldier is provided for at the public expense if the articles they want are above the common price. But the officer's family are obliged not only to beg in the most humble manner for the necessaries of life, but also to pay for them afterward at the most exorbitant rates. And even in this manner, many of them who depend entirely on their money cannot procure half the material comforts that are wanted in a family. This produced continual letters of complaint from home. When the officer had been fatigued through wet and cold and returns to his tent, where he finds a letter directed to him from his wife, filled with the most heart-aching tender complaints a woman is capable of writing, acquainting him with the incredible difficulty with which she procures a little bread for herself and children, and finally concluding with expressions bordering on despair of procuring a sufficiency of food to keep soul and body together through the winter, that her money is of very little consequence to her, that she begs him to consider that charity begins at home and not suffer his family to perish with want in the midst of plenty. When such, I say, is the tidings they constantly hear from their families, what man is there who has least regard for his family whose soul would not shrink within him, who would not be disheartened from persevering in the best of causes, the causes of his country, when such discouragements as these lie in his way, which his country might remedy, if they would? December 28th. Building our huts. December 29th. Continued the work. Snowed all day pretty briskly. The party of the 22nd returned. Lost 18 men, who were taken prisoners by being decoyed by the enemy's light horse who brought up the rear as they repassed the Skullkill to the city. Our party took 13 or 14 of their horsemen. The enemy came out to plunder, and have stripped the town of Derby of even all its household furniture. Our party was several times mixed with the enemy's horse, not knowing them from our Connecticut light horse, their cloaks being alike. So much talk about discharges among the officers, and so many are discharged. He's excellently lately expressed his fears of being left alone with the soldiers only. Strange that our country will not exert themselves for his support and save so good, so great a man from entertaining the least anxious doubt of their virtue and perseverance in supporting a cause of such unparalleled importance. 
all hell couldn't prevail against us if heaven continues no more than its former blessings, and if we keep up the credit of our money, which has now become of the last consequence. If its credit sinks but a few degrees more, we shall then repent when tis too late, and cry out for help when no one will appear to deliver. We who are in the camp and depend on our money entirely to procure the comforts of life feel the importance of this matter. He who is hoarding it up in his chest thinks little more of it than how he shall procure more. December 30th. Eleven deserters came in today, some Hessians and some English. One of the Hessians took an axe in his hand and cut away the ice of the skull kill the other day, but part of the two brigades were left in the city. Cold weather. Huts go on moderately. Very cold lying in tents. Beyond what one can think. December 31st. Adjutant Selden learned me how to darn stockings to make them look like knitwork. Valley Forge, December 31st, 1777. Dr. Waldo, surgeon of Colonel Prentice's regiment, is recommended for a furlough. J. Huntington, B. General. Applied with the above for a furlough to Dr. Cochrane, who replied, I am willing to oblige every gentleman of the faculty, but some of the Boston surgeons have, by taking an underhand method of getting furloughs, occasioned a complaint to be lodged with His Excellency, who has positively forbid me giving any furloughs at present. We shall soon have regimental hospitals erected, and general ones to receive the superabundant sick from them. If you will tarry till such regulations are made, you will have an honourable furlough, and even now I will, if you desire it, recommend you to His Excellency for one but desire you would stay a little while longer, and in the meantime recommend to me some young surgeon for a regiment, and I will immediately appoint him to a chief surgency from your recommendation. I shall remember the rascals who have used me ill. I concluded to stay, and immediately set about fixing accommodations for the sick, etc., etc. We got some spirits, and finished the year with a good drink and thankful hearts in our new hut, which stands on an eminence that overlooks the brigade and in sight of the front line. The Major and Commissary Little are to live with us, which makes our hut headquarters. In the evening I joyfully received a letter from my good and loving wife. The pleasure and satisfaction a man enjoys upon hearing of the health and peace of a friend, and more especially of a wife, on whose affections and peace his own happiness depends, is a greater pleasure than... 1778. January 1st. New Year. I am alive. I am well. Huts go on briskly, and our camp begins to appear like a spacious city. A party of our army at Wilmington took a ship in the Delaware from New York t'other day, in which were a number of officers' wives and about seventy or eighty men. His Excellency issued an order this day that no one in the army should have a new coat made without first obtaining a pattern. Nothing tends to the establishment of firmest friendship like mutual sufferings which produces mutual intentions and endeavours for mutual relief, which in such cases are equally shared with pleasures and satisfaction. In the course of this, each heart is laid open to full view. The similar passions in each approximate themselves by certain impulsive sympathy which terminates in lasting esteem. Brought an embroidered jacket. 
how much we affect to peer of consequence by a superfluous dress. And yet custom, that law which none may fight against, has rendered this absolutely necessary and commendable. An officer frequently fails of being duly noticed merely from the want of a genteel dress. And if joined to this, he has a bungled address, his situation is rendered very disagreeable. Neatness of dress, void of unnecessary superfluities, is very becoming, and discovers a man at least to have some ambition, without which he will never make any figure in life. A man appears to much greater advantage, especially among strangers, with a genteel dress, which will naturally prepossess the company in his favour, before they hear him speak. In this way, even the fool may pass for a man of consequence. A man ought always to dress, according to his business, let his abilities be what they will. But if his business is not sufficient to support a credible appearance in the world, let him discontinue it and undertake some other branch. But these are trifles not to be compared with virtue and good sense. By these is the road to true fame and glory. By these we walk through the world with the least hazard and obtain that peace of mind, that variety of agreeable reflection, and that esteem among the virtuous and amiable, which the vicious fool is a stranger to. January 3rd. Our hut, or rather our hermit's cell, goes on briskly. Having a short allowance of bread this morning, we divided it with great precision, eat our breakfast with thankful hearts for the little we had, took care of the sick, according to our daily practice, and went to work on our little humble cottage. Now, ye poets, give me my wife and children, with your daisies, your roses, your tulips, and your other insignificant poetical materials, and I believe I should be pretty contented in this humble cottage which the muses have so often described. Another ship was taken from the enemy this week, the lading taken out and the ship burned. The other ship mentioned, New Year's Day, was loaded with officers' baggage and medicines, with other valuable matters, and clothing for 200 men complete. Note. He quotes some lines from the poet Alexander Pope here, but I'm not going to include them. Fresh beef and flour make me perfectly sick, especially as we have no spirits to drink it with. But others stand it, so must I. Today, His Excellency, in orders, acquainted the troops of the Congress's high approbation of their spirited perseverance and good conduct this campaign, that rations should be raised monthly in proportion to the rise of the Articles of Life, but the Congress were exerting themselves to supply the commissary and clothier departments with a great quantity of better stores than hitherto, that the troops may be supplied with a greater quantity of provision than they have been of late, and that a month's wages extraordinarily shall be given to every officer and soldier who shall live in the huts this winter. Good encouragement, this, and we think ourselves deserving of it, for the hunger, thirst, cold and fatigue we have suffered this campaign. Although we have not fought much, yet the oldest soldiers among us have called the campaign a very severe and hard one. Sunday, January 4th. Properly accoutred, I went to work at masonry. None of my mess were to dictate me, and before night, being found with mortar and stone, I almost completed a genteel chimney to my magnificent hut. However, as we had short allowance of food and no grog, my back ached before night. 
I was called to relieve a soldier thought to be dying. He expired before I reached the hut. He was an Indian, an excellent soldier, and an obedient, good-natured fellow. He engaged for money, doubtless, as others do, but he has served his country faithfully. He has fought for those very people who disinherited his forefathers. Having finished his pilgrimage, he was discharged from the war of life and death. His memory ought to be respected more than those ones who supply the world with nothing better than money and vice. There the poor fellow lies, not superior now to a clod of earth, his mouth wide open, his eyes staring. Was he affrighted at the scene of death, or the consequences of it? Doubtless both, but he has doubtless acted agreeable to the dictates of nature in the course of his whole life. Why should he then be afraid of the consequences of death? Where then is his immaterial part taken in flight? Undoubtedly the scene changes and admits him into another state, and there fixes him forever. But what is that state? happy or miserable. He has been an honest fellow, has done his duty to his maker and his fellow creatures as far as his inclinations and abilities would permit of. Therefore, we'll suppose him happier now than ever. What a frail, dying creature is man. We are certainly not made for this world. Daily evidence demonstrates the contrary. Note, there are a few more lines of poetry here. I don't know who the poet is, or if it's Albigence himself, but I'm pretty sure it's not Pope. The Marquis de Lafayette, a volunteer in our army, and he who gave three ships to Congress, is very agreeable in his person and great in his character. Being a major general, Brigadier Conway, an Irish colonel from France, took umbrage thereat and resigned, but is now made Inspector General of the Army. He is a great character. He wore a commission in the French service when he was but ten years old. Major General Lord Stirling is a man of very noble presence, and the most martial appearance of any general in the service. He much resembles the Marquis of Granby, by his bald head, and the make of his face, and the figure of his body. He is mild in his private conversation, and vociferous in the field but he has always been unfortunate in actions. Count Pulaski, general of the horse, is a man of hardly middling stature, sharp countenance, and lively air. He contended a long time with his uncle, the present King of Poland, for the crown, but being overcome he fled to France, and has now joined the American army, where he is greatly respected and admired for his martial skill, courage, and intrepidity. General Green and General Sullivan are greatly esteemed. Baron de Kalb, a major general, is another very remarkable character, and a gentleman much esteemed. January 5th. Applied for a furlough. Surgeon General not at home. Come back mumping and sulky. January 6th. Applied again. Was denied by reason of inoculations being set on foot and because the Boston surgeons had too many of them gone, one of whom is to be broke for his lying and deceiving in order to get a furlough, and I wish his cursed tongue was pulled out for thus giving an example of scandal to the New England surgeons, though the Connecticut ones are well enough respected at present. Came home sulky and cross-stormed at the boys, 
and swore round like a piper and a fool till most night, when I bought me a skin, dressed with the hair on. This will serve me to lie on, set on. Note. There's another lacuna in the text here. Case. It serves to keep off those melancholy ideas which often attend such a person, and who loves his family and wishes to be with them. If I should happen to lose this little journal, any fool may laugh that finds it, since I know that there is nothing in it but the natural flowings and reflections of my own heart, which is human as well as other people's. And if there is a great deal of folly in it, there is no intended ill-nature. And I am sure there is much sincerity, especially when I mention my family, whom I cannot help saying, and am not ashamed to say, that I love. But I begin to grow sober. I shall be homesick again. Muses attend. File off to the right, grim melancholy. Seek no more an asylum in thine enemy's breast. Waft me hence, ye muses, to the brow of Mount Parnassus. For to the summit I dare not, will not presume to climb. We have got our huts to be very comfortable and feel ourselves happy in them. I only want my family and I should be as happy here as anywhere, except in the article of food, which is sometimes pretty scanty. The brig taken from the enemy, and mentioned New Year's Day, is the greatest prize ever taken from them. There is scarlet, blue and buff cloth, sufficient to clothe all the officers of the army, and hats, shirts, stockings, shoes, boots, spurs, etc., to finish complete suits for all. A petition is sent to His Excellency that this clothing may be dealt out to the regimental officers only, at a moderate price, excluding commissaries, bull drivers, etc. There are four or five thousand appellés of gold and silver, many chests of private officers' baggage, and General Howe's silver plate, and kitchen furniture, etc. This cargo was sent to clothe all the officers of the British Army. January 8th. Unexpectedly got a furlough. Set out for home. The very worst of riding, mud and mire. We had gone through inoculation before this furlough. Note. I didn't even find this story whilst researching smallpox. You just can't get away from inoculation. The last page and a half is an expense log, so I'm not going to read that out. And that brings us to the end of the extract, and to the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. Now, I know that basically every podcast asks you to rate and review at the end of every episode, because it super duper helps their ratings and visibility, blah blah blah. And I also know, as a podcast listener, how rarely I actually bother to do that. Reviews are just so... Ugh, to write. Obviously, I would love it if you do write a review, but right now I'm more interested in asking you to give me a rating. Not because it'll help visibility and stuff, but because it just lets me know that you're listening and that you want more episodes. If you have questions, comments, feedback, want to suggest a topic, etc., you can find the podcast on Twitter at PoisonRoomPod or send an email to PoisonRoomPodcast at gmail.com. Maybe let me know what kind of episodes you prefer, or whether they're too long or short, or... Just don't mention the smallpox saga. I know that was a lot. 
Transcripts of all episodes, including the references and bibliography, are available at poisonroom.com. You have been listening to The Poison Room, a podcast that grants unexpected furloughs. The voice in your ears has been a hermit in the woods sleeping in a hole. <laughs>